have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. We are concluding this morning <clears throat> Romans 11, which also means we're concluding this, this section uh, from Romans 9 through 11, this broader section, which really was a uh, a section that speaks to God's salvation plan for Jews and Gentiles. We, we bring that section to a, a close this morning, and we'll be transitioning then next week into sort of a new, shifting gears into a new uh, uh, direction in Paul's letter to the Romans where he begins to lay out some practical implications. So uh, Romans 11, we'll be looking this morning at verses 25 to 36. And before... I read, I do invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, good, how good, Lord God, how good it is to gather in worship or to sing of your praise, to sing of your glory to remember in song and remember in prayer the great things that you have done. And I pray now, O Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, that our worship will continue this morning. I pray, O Lord, that you take us deeper in, uh, deep into the truths of these words. Give us a, a deeper understanding of the beauty of your salvation plan. May your word, O oh Lord, be planted deep in us. And may it bear fruit of abundant change that would be for our transformation, for our good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 11, verses 25 to 36. Apostle Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so, too, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. 
Jared Wilson has written about what he calls gospel wakefulness. And he defines gospel wakefulness as treasuring Christ more greatly and and savoring his power more sweetly than before. So gospel wakefulness is uh, coming to a point in your discipleship in which you not only believe the gospel, but but you delight in it to a, a greater degree than you, than you had before. And you see with increased clarity the, the bitterness of sin and the sweetness of Christ as your supreme treasure. It is sort of this, this, sort of this, uh, this sometimes sudden and dramatic leap in, in that understanding and awareness, gospel wakefulness. He illustrates this idea of gospel wakefulness with a story. He invites us to imagine that you are driving down the road and your car stalls on railroad tracks. And your frustration turns to panic when you look and you see that there is a train coming down the tracks towards you. And the train is fast approaching and its horn is blaring. And you try to unfasten the seatbelt to get out of the car, but you're paralyzed with fear and suddenly your, your fingers don't move, you're, you're, you're trembling and your muscles are just frozen and you can't get out of the car. The train is rushing towards you and just when it's about to crash into you, there is this sudden jolt from behind. A man in a truck has rammed into the back of your car, pushing you off the tracks and taking the blow from the train in your place. And the man in the truck is instantly killed as his truck is smashed by this train. And you get out of the car and you're shaking and trembling. And as you begin to calm down, you're overcome with this deep sense of gratitude for that man who gave his life to save yours. You were just so, so thankful to, to be alive. And as it all begins to sort of settle into you, you sit down on the trunk of your car just trying to process everything that has happened. And as you're sitting on the trunk of your car, you hear a little whimper coming from inside. And what you didn't know was that before you left the house that day, your kids were playing hide and seek. And your youngest son had decided to hide in the trunk of your car. And you open the trunk to see your son looking up at you, and miraculously, he is unharmed. And in, in that moment, you, you realize the depth of the loss that you almost suffered. And your gratitude in that moment is now far greater than it had been just moments before. Well, that sudden and dramatic shift or that leap in gratitude is an illustration of gospel wakefulness. It is a dramatic increase in our understanding of and our response to the salvation that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are some moments in our discipleship when suddenly we just, we see things more clearly or we experience it more deeply and and we have this sort of leap in in our response to the gospel. In our text this morning, Paul leads us, I think, into a kind of gospel wakefulness. Throughout Romans 9 through 11, Paul has been talking all about God's 
plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. That has been the, the dominating theme of this whole section. And in this concluding section of, of, this, of that, those overarching chapters, we see the beauty of that plan. And if we have hearts to receive it, we will be awakened anew to the wonder of the gospel. So as we enter into this text this morning, we see that Paul answers three main questions about God's salvation plan. So the overarching theme of this section is the salvation plan of God, and he answers three questions about God's salvation plan. Number one, what is the mystery of God's salvation plan? Number two, what does this salvation plan reveal about God's character? And then number three, what is our proper response to it as believers? And so first, what is the, the mystery of God's salvation plan? Paul, notice the language Paul uses in verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Now, in biblical usage, a, a mystery is not something that is, as we understand it, something that is sort of puzzling or, or hard to figure out. That is not the biblical sense of mystery. A mystery is some secret of the kingdom of God that is hidden in the sovereign mind of God and revealed in his own time and in his own terms. A mystery is some, something that God knows, that only God knows, that he chooses to reveal. So think, for example, of... Go back to the story of Daniel. When Daniel was, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he, he uh, wanted to know what the dream meant, and so he called all the magicians and the sorcerers together, and he, he asked them to not only explain what the dream meant, but before you do that, he said, I want you to tell me what the dream was. And they were, they were like, well, they, they, no, you're, you're crazy. Nobody can do that. No, nobody knows, nobody can possibly know what you dreamt. Except Daniel who comes and says, no, that's impossible. No human can know, but there is a God who knows mysteries. And he can, on his own terms and in his time, in his own time, reveal mysteries to his people. And so God is revealed in that section of Daniel as the revealer of mysteries. That's, that's what the, the biblical sense of what a mystery is, something that God only, God only knows and he cho can choose to reveal in his own time and on his own terms. So what is the mystery of God's salvation plan? Well, it is what Paul has been saying in different ways throughout Romans 9 through 11. It is this, that, that God will harden the Israelites, which will lead to the salvation of Gentiles. And the salvation of Gentiles will make Israel envious, leading in turn to salvation for the Israelites. That is the mystery of God's plan of salvation that Paul has been hinting at in different ways and now states here explicitly. In other words, God will use both Jews and Gentiles unknowingly to assist each other on the stage of salvation history in order to accomplish the saving purpose that he has ordained. Now, Paul states this mystery of God's salvation plan clearly in verses 25 to 26. This is what he says. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So notice the pattern. Israel hardened, Gentiles drawn in, Israel saved. We see that same pattern throughout Romans 11. In verses 11 and 12, Paul said that Israel's transgression uh, would lead to salvation for the Gentiles, which would in turn uh, result in full inclusion for the Israelites. 
And again, in verse 15, Paul said that Israel's rejection would bring reconciliation to the Gentiles, which would bring Israel's acceptance. Verses 17 to 23, Paul described Israel as natural branches that are broken off of the tree. Gentiles are then like wild shoots that are grafted in. And then he says, the natural branches will be grafted back in as well. And so it is consistently that same pattern. Israel set aside through hardening, Gentiles drawn in, Israel restored through envy. This is the mystery of God's salvation plan. This is what God has, has purposed from the beginning of time. This is, this is the way he has mapped it out according to his good purpose and design. I remember Chuck Swindoll years ago, I was listening to him when I was out working in a field somewhere. And I, I remember this, uh, he, he, he was talking about this passage and and he used a sort of a word picture to describe what Paul is talking about here. And that word picture has always stuck in my mind ever since. So he, he, told, he said it like this. He said, it was like God had prepared a great feast for the Jews. And the Jews rejected it. And so God invited the Gentiles. And they streamed into his banquet hall. And they sat down and they enjoyed this, this fantastic feast with the, the finest meats and the finest of wines and a table full of desserts. And the Jews are now on the outside looking in. They are standing outside, outside this great banquet hall, looking through the windows to the inside at all these Gentiles sitting around down at the table and enjoying this great feast. And their mouths begin to water. And they're sorry that they rejected the feast. And through their envy, they are then drawn back in to join the Gentiles at the table. And none of this was by chance. It's not like that God had planned for Israel. And, oh, well, I guess they, they, they rejected it. I wasn't planning. I didn't know that was going to happen. So I guess I'll have to go to plan B and sort of, you know, see if I can get the Gentiles to come in. No, that's not the way it worked. God had this mapped out from the beginning. All, it all unfolded exactly as God had planned according to his design. And, and the centerpiece, of course, of this plan of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, the, the center of it all, the thing around which everything revolves, is Christ. The, the, the hardening of Israel came through their rejection of Christ. The salvation of Gentiles came through their faith in Christ. And the restoration of Israel will come through softened hearts that receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christ himself is the very center around which salvation revolves for both Jews and Gentiles. The old man Simeon understood this, didn't he? Remember that scene in Luke's gospel early in Luke's gospel when, when baby Jesus was, when, when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus to the temple for his, his purification rites and, and they come into the temple and, and, and Simeon, who's an old man waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for, for, for the culmination and fulfillment of God's salvation to, to, to be brought about. He's standing there in the temple and he sees baby Jesus and he knows that this is it. And so he goes to them and he holds and he, he takes baby Jesus in his arms and he says, Sovereign Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This one little baby, the one, the, the one who will bring salvation, to, who will bring together both Jews and Gentiles, a, a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The salvation plan for Jews and Gentiles revolves around Jesus. 
And Paul says that the culmination of this plan is that all Israel will be saved. Now, as you might imagine, that statement has generated volumes of discussion and and debate. Let me try to boil it down very concisely and simply for you. In the context of Romans 9 through 11, Paul here is, is very clearly talking about ethnic Israel. There, there's really no way to, some have tried to say, well, Paul, what Paul means by all Israel here is the spiritual Israel, the, the, the full number of Jews and Gentiles together. Not in this context. There's really no way, no good way for it to mean that in this context. He's talking about ethnic Israel. But we know that not every ethnic Israelite will be saved, right? Paul himself has said in the early part of Romans that that some Jews will endure God's wrath on the day of judgment. So what then does Paul mean when he says all Israel will be saved? Well, I believe this is what he means. I believe he is saying that all the elect within Israel will be saved, that all of the elect Israelites will be saved. This is consistent with what Paul has been saying throughout this whole section. He said back in chapter 9, verse 27, quoting the prophet Isaiah, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only the elect within Israel will be saved. That's when Paul talks about the full inclusion of Israel. He's talking about the elect within Israel. And I think that's what he means when he says here, all Israel all of the elect within Israel will be saved. Now, I will say this. There are a good number of commentators who say that Paul is saying more than that. And so he's, he's not saying that every Israelite will be saved, but there are a good number of commentators who say that Paul is saying more than just simply that all the elect within Israel will be saved. They say that he is, what Paul is saying is that a time will come, a future time will come near the end before Christ returns when there will be a, a massive influx of Jews into the kingdom of God. This, this massive conversion, a large-scale conversion of the Jews to, to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that at that particular time in redemption history, the, the vast majority of ethnic Israel will be saved. And that's a, that is a, a legitimate uh, trans, uh, uh, interpretation. Um, I, I just don't go quite that far because I, I, I feel confident that at, at the very least Paul is saying this. Maybe he's saying more than that, but I, I don't feel too confident giving maybes. And so I I think that we can confidently say that Paul is saying that all the elect within Israel will be saved. So this is the mystery of God's salvation plan, that through the hardening of the Israelites, many Gentiles will be saved, and through the salvation of the Gentiles, the full number of elect Israelites will be saved. Now, that brings us then to our second question, and that is, well, what does this salvation plan reveal about God's character? And the answer that Paul gives is that it reveals his mercy, Notice what Paul says in verses 30 to 31. He says, Just as you Gentiles who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of Israel's disobedience, so so the Israelites have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Now, it's a little bit of a clunky way to put it, I think, uh, or at least to our ears, um, 
But notice the emphasis, what comes through clearly in that is notice the emphasis on mercy. God works through the disobedience of his people for the display of his mercy. That, that's that's the, the main character of God that is revealed through this salvation plan. In fact, Paul makes this summary statement in verse 32 when he says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, that word bound uh, literally means imprisoned or locked away. And so the imagery here is that all humans are, are prisoners locked in our, in our self-made dungeon of rebellion and disobedience. And there's nothing that we can do to break out of the prison. It is only by God's mercy that the prison doors are flung open and we are released. Now, some people get hung up on, on that word all at the end of verse 32. And they say, well, Paul, you know, Paul is teaching here universal salvation, that, that all people will be saved in the end. But the broader context, well, not to mention what you know, Paul very clearly doesn't allow for that in his own teaching elsewhere, but the broader context makes it clear what Paul means here. He's been talking all along about God's salvation plan for Jews and Gentiles. That's, that's, that's what he wants his readers to see, that there's a plan for these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And so when he says that God will have mercy on them all, he means all in the sense of these two groups, Jew and Gentile alike. As one commentator, I think, helpfully puts it, God's mercy on all is on all without distinction and not on all without exception. So the salvation plan of God reveals his mercy. And the word mercy, eleo, means to show kindness or concern to someone in serious need. There, there's that, that aspect of neediness as central to, to, to mercy. Arthur Pink defines mercy as the ready inclination of God to relieve his fallen creatures of their misery. Note that, again, that, that neediness, being in a miserable condition. A.W. Tozer says, It is an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. And the mercy of God is central to his character and is revealed in countless ways throughout Scripture. The prophet Jeremiah said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Think about that. The mercies of God, new. Every, every day that you wake up, there's, there's new opportunity, a new way for God to reveal his mercy. Great is your faithfulness. The prophet Micah said, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. As those words of Micah suggest, we can only fully appreciate the, the wonder of God's mercy when we see it against the background of human sin. If, if we don't, if we don't see our own sinfulness, we will not grasp the wonder of God's mercy. And Paul has shown us throughout Romans that all people are on an equal footing before God, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All are under the power of sin and deserving of, of God's wrath. 
As James Boyce put it, sin lowers everyone to the same needy level so that mercy alone can lift us to the heights. And so central to the idea of mercy is this idea of our neediness. And yet how, how quick we are to forget that. How quick we are to forget our, our neediness. How quick we are to, to think highly of ourselves. Or to think that somehow we've contributed something or earned at least some measure of God's favor. How quick to become prideful and conceited in our salvation. This is the problem that Paul was addressing among his Gentile audience in this section of Romans. And so he said in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Why? So that you may not be conceited. Because there, again, there, here's the way that Gentiles would, would tend to think. And this is just consistent with human nature, isn't it? Well, you know, Gentiles were, or the Jews were cast off. And now, now God's favor has come to us. How great must we be? How great to be in this position of favor. How, how great that God has shined his face on us. Well, this is the problem Paul was addressing among his Gentile audience. In other words, Paul is saying, you know, you, you Gentiles need to know your place in the drama of salvation history. You, you have to understand how you got to be at this place where you are. You've been drawn into God's saving embrace by his mercy alone, by his sovereign purpose. There is no other, there's no other way to explain it. And Paul said the same thing in the previous section of Romans, which uh, Pastor Ben talked on last week. He said, you Gentiles will say branches, meaning the Israelites, were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So, so don't have this, this way of thinking, oh, they, they were broken off and now, now we've been grafted in. How great for us. And the, your response ought to be instead, well, oh, the wonder of God's mercy that he has granted us this undeserving gift of salvation. The mercy of God leaves no room for arrogance and pride. Paul wants to bring us to our knees in humility so that we can see with renewed wonder the mercy by which we are saved. And by the way, I think that applies more broadly to, beyond just salvation, but just in general that, I mean, that in so many different ways, pride so easily sneaks into our hearts and it's just like a, like a, a poison and like a cancer that destroys our spirits and it destroys our relationships. May God grant us humility so we can see with renewed wonder the mercy by which we are saved. That brings us then to our final question this morning, and that is, well, what is our proper response as believers to God's salvation plan? And the only fitting response is to give glory to God in humble worship and praise. 
I mean, everything is, everything is leading to this, to this doxology at the end of Romans 11. This is what Paul does in verses 33 to 36. He just, he's a sort of this outburst of humble worship and praise. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now these verses form the conclusion not only to this section, but to the whole section of Romans 9 through 11. So for for three chapters... Paul has been contemplating God's salvation plan for, for Jews and Gentiles. And after these three chapters of, of contemplating and working out and, and receiving from God what this salvation plan is, Paul just now bursts into praise. It's almost as if he is so overcome with the wonder of what God has done, with the, with the beauty of this, this mystery that it has been hidden in God's mind and now revealed to Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, He's so overcome with the wonder of it all that he can't contain himself. He's thinking about, his thinking about God naturally gives way to adoration. His theology spills over into doxology. Like a weary traveler who has reached the summit of a great alpine ascent, Paul stops at this point in his letter to, to take in the view and he's, just, he's overcome with wonder over the wisdom and the ways of God. Now, he'll go on in the next chapters to lay out, the, like I said, the, the practical implications of the gospel. But first, before he, before he just kind of rushes right on to what do we do, what do we do, before he does that, he falls down before God and he worships. And that's the way it ought to be with us. Our theology and our doxology must always be held together. What I mean by that is that our, our thinking about God, which is our theology, is meant to evoke praise, which is doxology. And our praise, our doxology, is meant to be grounded in a right thinking about God, which is theology. So our, our, our theology and doxology must always be held together. Let me give you, leave you this morning with, with two statements that, I, that, that get at what I mean and, 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 and what that, how that applies to us today. So on the one hand, doxology without theology is idolatry. Doxology without theology is idolatry. Any worship that is not grounded in theology is a worship of something other than the true God as revealed in Scripture, and any worship of something other than true God is idolatry. This, this is why theology is so important. This is why doctrine is so important. This is why we must always keep the Bible at the center of our worship. And the center of our preaching and teaching, not only in word, but in practice. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, our church is built around the Bible. But do you do that in practice? Does, does every decision you make and everything you teach, is it, are you always going back to the word and holding it in light of God's word? Or are you simply kind of floating along by traditions? 
It is scripture that keeps us from wandering wayward into idolatrous forms of worship. It is through scripture that we come to a right understanding of God. And it's only when we are grounded in scripture that our worship of God is true worship. We, we, we cannot worship a God we do not know. And we know God most clearly and fully through his self-revelation on the pages of Scripture. So doxology without theology is idolatry. And so the takeaway for us from that first statement is to stay grounded in the word of God. To, to, for, for, for us, for each of you as individuals and as families and for us as a congregation, to savor the word of God as something more precious than silver, to treasure it as something sweeter than honey. Meditate on it day and night, as the psalmist says. Spend time in it. Read it and, and study it and, and contemplate it and memorize it. Keep walking in its light and leading your family in its truth. Do not neglect the word of God. So that's the first statement. Doxology without theology is idolatry. But then on the other hand, Theology without doxology is religiosity. In other words, if, if our study of God does not spill over into worship, then we have nothing but sort of this detached academic interest in God. We have nothing but the empty shell of religion, an intellectual thinking about God that is all head and, and no heart. You know, sometimes when I talk to people who are either outside the faith or maybe, you know, really nominal Christians or something, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, um, they'll describe me or say, oh, you know, I, I don't know, if I, know, I, don't know if, I, if I could ever be a religious person like you. And I think, oh, I, I, I hope that I'm not, I mean, don't describe me that way. I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm not, I'm not a religious person. I mean, the, the most religious people in Jesus' day were the Pharisees. And so if, we, if our study of God does not spill over into worship, it, it, it soon turns into religiosity and, re, and there's nothing saving about religiosity. An intellectual thinking about God that is all head and no heart. We, you know, we might have all the right answers about God like the Pharisees did. We might be able to articulate all the ins and outs of the finer points of, of doctrine and theology. We might, we might know all there is to know about Scripture. We might have a wealth of information that can impress our colleagues and our friends. We might you know, win any kind of Bible bee that would be out there. But, it doesn't, if it, but if it doesn't evoke praise within us, it's all meaningless. It's just an empty shell of knowledge that does nothing to bring us into relationship with a living God. So theology without doxology is mere religiosity. And, and, and the takeaway for us from that second statement is, is then to make time and space for worship. Do what Paul does here at the end of Romans 11. Instead of just rushing on to the next thing, rushing on to, to, to doing and, and, and being, he pauses and he, and he allows his heart to be filled with the wonder of worship. It's so easy to settle into a kind of detached interest in God while our hearts drift farther and farther away. So prioritize corporate worship. 
Set aside time every day for intentional and worshipful encounters with God. Find those ways in which your own spirit is, is fed and, and your, your spiritual life grows and invest in those times deeply. Take time to ponder his truths and to contemplate his character because there's so much of him to know. I mean, we have this, this infinite wealth, this infinite mine of, of, of treasures of who God is and, 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 and is there for us to explore and to, and so often we're just content to kind of just skim the surface. That's what Paul is getting at in, in his doxology here at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. His judgments are unsearchable. His paths are untraceable. His mind is unfathomable. His wealth is unmatchable. He is the source of all things and the agent of all things and the end of all things. And the more, the more we contemplate him in worship, the more we will find that there are still more beauties to discover. More beauties to behold and more wonders to attain. So learn from Paul and create space to let your theology spill over into praise. It, it takes discipline. Sometimes it takes solitude. Sometimes it, it takes just the discipline of sitting and being in the presence of God. Don't let your spiritual life shrivel into mere religious practice. Don't settle for a theology without doxology, which withers into religiosity. So in Romans 9 through 11, Paul has unveiled the wonder of God's salvation plan. And through it, I trust has led us to a, a, a greater gospel wakefulness. This salvation plan is a plan, he says, that will bring to salvation the full number of his elect Jews and Gentiles. It's a plan that reveals the magnitude of his mercy. And it's a plan that evokes a response of humble praise. And so as we ponder the, the wonder of God's plan of salvation, let us fall down before him in worship. And let us say with Paul, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we contemplate, O oh Lord, the, the mystery of your plan of salvation, Lord, it indeed does evoke within us a response of humble worship and praise. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would impress upon us even more the importance of, of holding our doxology and our theology together. Lord, if we have strayed into ways in which our, our life as disciples of Jesus has become mere religious practice, Forgive us. And Lord, if we have wandered into ways where our worship is not grounded in the truths of Scripture, if we have neglected the, the words of Scripture, forgive us. Lead us, O oh Lord, into a, 
a deep discipleship that robustly holds these two things together. Lord, hear our silent prayers as we come before your throne this morning. Oh, the depth, Lord God, of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. Lord, how unsearchable are your judgments and your paths beyond tracing out. Lord, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been your counselor? Who has ever given to you that you should repay them? For from you, and through you and for you are all things. You are the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. And to you, O Lord, to you alone be the glory forever. Lord, may we, as followers of Jesus Christ, give you glory and honor. May we be drawn every day more and more in ever deepening ways be drawn, O Lord, to humble worship and praise, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.